This is the Total Football Podcast. I am Declan Hart. And I'm Andrew Conway. Let's get on with the show. This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Arsene Wenger's been in Japan for a year. He doesn't know anything about English football. I have nothing to say. I'm so sorry, I have nothing to say. It's the history of the Tottenham. But this action is really incredible, incredible. If you don't know the answer to that question, then I think you're, you, you, are, you are an ostrich. One saving grace of even the worst of international breaks is that we are spared two whole weeks of BT Sports coverage. A blissful period without having to hear from Peter Walton. It was nice, wasn't it? Not just just, just having that... It was like a, a breathing space, a breath of fresh air, a... A nice little moment that we could have had to ourselves without having the BT Sport voices in our heads and the weird narratives they try to drive, usually related to refereeing decisions of some sort. Um, but yeah, bizarre, a bizarre, a, a bizarre period to come back to 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 have to re-engage with them following that blissful blissful period of two weeks. Of it, it's the fact as well that they get the first game back every time because of the twelve thirty kickoff on a Saturday being their time slot. Mm-hmm. So. And you can just you just know that every time there's going to be some refereeing decision or some contrivance that they'll make to to uh, include a refereeing controversy because like I have like this Pavlovian reaction to just absolute of absolute disgust <laughs> anytime I hear the words. Now let's bring in Peter Walton. <laughs> it's just <laughs> such a, a pointless exercise that they persist on doing, uh, despite the fact that no one ever seems in any way interested in anything that he has to say and I think the only moment of significance he's had in the years in his role is that moment when Tottenham scored in the Champions League and it just cut to him celebrating for like two (laughs) seconds that was the best moment of anyone's anyone's career in any type of refereeing uh, you know parlance or whatever you want to call it um wonderful moments wonderful moments but I don't know if I can that alone can excuse the rest of his contribution to football which is quite minimal and very annoying and 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 to be fair i you know poor peter walton he's not the only problem with bt sport uh, but he does encapsulate quite a bit then uh into the actual action itself and uh the big surprise i suppose you could say of the weekend was chelsea losing 4-1 at home to brentford <laughs> like that was uh where did that come from <laughs> Well, like they scored the best goal of the weekend, in my opinion, Rudiger, and and the best celebration. Probably, you know, I saw that that Twitter account. The moments that precede unfortunate events of, <laughs> of anti Rudiger um, sticking his tongue out after he scored a worldie, really um, for him, especially from that range. Fantastic, a fantastic long range goal for him, especially against against this Brentford side that is quite good in a, for keeping those type of shots out. But Brentford really just they could have had more than four. Now, one thing came to mind right before we started recording: Chelsea are playing a Champions League match this week. Thomas Tuchel and we did talk about it last week when we did went through our predictions. He does have a habit of throwing matches. Um, he did it certainly at Paris. He's he's doing it at Chelsea. He did it last year definitely uh, in the roll up to that Champions League final. Um, is it is it really that Chelsea were that bad, or were they kind of like leaving a bit in the tank for Real Madrid on Wednesday? Well, I saw a funny tweet that was along the lines of "We really need to investigate Thomas Tuchel and his reaction to March international breaks," because it was this time last year that Chelsea lost five two to West Brom. 
so that's just a, a funny pattern and maybe it is the fact that there's a Champions League game coming up that's not a bad theory and uh, mm. uh, I'm glad you brought up the predictions because it was just like immediately showing how much of a sham <laughs> predicting yeah. football is because uh, you know it's just anything can really happen sometimes and uh, you know Christian Eriksen was uh, at the at the heart of it all as well a uh, nice first goal uh, for Brentford there for him as he continues that uh, that fun journey on his comeback which uh, was nice yeah, as well yeah. You know, technically speaking, by goals per minute, he must be one of the tops in Europe this season uh, between international and, and, and his club career now. Um, yeah, it was, it was good for him and Brentford seemed to really enjoy it. Like I I personally come a few months ago to, to go back on predictions. I did think Brentford were going to be in a relegation battle. They couldn't buy a win for Lovner money, couldn't score any goals either. And whatever has happened, um, they've managed to kind of stimmy the, that, that drop in in points and and just stabilize themselves and they look fairly comfortable and like they're going to finish mid-table without too much hassle yeah because like as well remember at the start of the season they did start off very well obviously that that winning against arsenal but then they had some big games they didn't they draw three all with liverpool as well which Mm. (laughs) as the weeks goes on uh looks like a better and better result every week and uh i remember as well they absolutely battered chelsea at home but didn't get the results they absolutely deserved to hammer them uh, so I suppose it's justice that they've they've come to Stamford Bridge and and finally got that hammering <laughs> that they were yeah. they were owed uh, and some of the from goals behind as well. as well from behind that's that that's can't true. be like they had to really turn it on and and Chelsea had, like they were just in sixes and sevens at the back the the way that Brentford were able to get through the midfield uh like yeah yeah go on and talk about the goals there but like Chelsea defending Ooh. Yeah, like I, I was going to highlight the, um, I think it was the second goal, the one that, that Ericsson scored. They've got three men marking Mbwemo and they all just leave Ericsson yeah. open and it's a very simple pass to make to get it to Ericsson and then he just basically has to tap it home. And uh, like, I think it was Kante was the one that was kind of covering Ericsson. He runs across and it was just, what what was the decision-making process that, that went into to, to doing that? It was very strange. And then um, I was it the third goal as well where um, one of the players was, I think it was Yano just was able to run through the middle of the box unmarked for it was a pretty nice pass to him but just such a simple ball in that uh, no, like a huge hole open in, in the middle of the box it was so silly and it was really quite worrying because if they do that against Real Madrid like Real Madrid won't hesitate to punish them for that either no that's uh, that's my thoughts exactly because Real Madrid are very we don't want to call Brentford Real Madrid or Real Madrid Brentford but they're, they're not miles apart in terms of the style of football they play they want to play clever insightful football from centre midfield uh, they want to play it to kind of these mobile uh, attackers that are going to pull and, and prod your defence and, and split things open and if, if Chelsea intend to go into the with the same mindset into that Real Madrid match Real Madrid will take them apart like there's no no doubt in my mind like I'd still have you know, Real Madrid is slight favourites. Although, you know, whenever I, whenever I do bet against uh, one of the teams, whether you know, generally speaking, defending champions, it tends to be the opposite that happens. And and like in in years gone by, Real Madrid would win every match. And in this case, maybe Chelsea will absolutely trounce trounce them in the, in in this first leg. But like, if if they do that against a top top quality side with players like Modric, with players like Vinicius, with players, you know. Who have a bit more in the tank, I'd say, in terms of their 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 energy levels, given the, what happened at the weekend in in Spain as well. Like I, I this Chelsea, I'd be very worried about this team. And you know, we talked about the demise uh, being, you know, maybe a bit of 
bit of a, a, a mystique or a bit of a, a joke a few weeks ago when when all the Ramovich stuff happened and, and maybe maybe it's now starting to catch up with them because they, they were at sixes and sevens in in, in defense like they couldn't they couldn't string anything together they couldn't really close down anybody and and Ivan Tony isn't Kareem Benzema you know it's it's a different level of player yeah, and uh, another club where things aren't quite going so well at the moment was Man United. They lost ground on the on the top four race with a one all draw with Leicester, and uh, like it was, I wouldn't say it was a, necessarily a terrible performance for Man United, more that it was just a dismal match overall, um, <laughs> and was one that would just it's like a funeral atmosphere really. Like everything just seemed very grim around Old Trafford, where they've only won like half their games this season. That's where they got. Mm eliminated from uh, the Champions League in, in the last time they played there. So, uh, you know, the home form in particular has been pretty poor in a, in a pretty terrible season for them so far. Yeah, and to be fair, I, I when we did the predictions last week as well, I looked at United and I thought they'd be stronger away from home than at home. And it, it certainly started off that way anyway. Like, I think they had their moments in the game. They probably could have won it late on because they had the pressure on if, they, if they'd if they managed to convert some chances if Alanga hadn't tackled Marcus Rashford for no, bizarre, for no apparent reason when he was in the box. Um, I think United could have got something out of this match, but conversely, Leicester easily could have had that goal allowed uh, and won the game. And, you know, they're... Like Leicester City, this is a team that can't buy a win against the top sides this year. They even when they're the better side, they conspire to lose or to drop points, and they manage to hold on uh, against United. I think that was a damnation against the side, and you know we'll we'll talk about it later on. But there's a make break make or break weekend coming up for Manchester United, and I I don't know if they're going to pass that test. Yeah, and like you know, it all started I suppose before the game started with um, Ronaldo being ruled out with illness, and that left no one up front because Cavani also out with injury. Um, and I do think that the team obviously needs some kind of focal point because you could just tell like there was no one really making many forward runs off the ball. Yeah, um, you know there there was just you know you you would have ima- you would ha- you would have imagined before the game that someone like Bruno Fernandez would be the guy that pops up in the box that header or but, something. Or, uh, he's uh, not that kind of player though. We, he's not we, a false we've seen nine. him. He's not a- we we have seen him do it though in the past where he he's just had that moment. And he did actually have probably the best chance of the game in fairness to him. But a lot of the time it would be him on the ball looking up to cross, and I'd be like, well, the person you're supposed to be aiming at here is yourself. So um, yeah. and Pogba as well as another player that just. You know, I think from midfield running in deep, he can be quite good in the box. But um, you know, as the actual focal point, he found the timing quite difficult when to make a run. He was caught offside early on a couple of times, and he just seemed to stop making those runs after that. Um, so that was a very obvious problem that yeah. they had. And you know, as poor as I think Ronaldo's been this season, they still they need a body up front apparently, um, or this game well, made yeah. quite apparent. Well, that's, you know, for many years at Real Madrid, Benzema was that body uh, for Ronaldo, that foil for Ronaldo. And, you know, not that Benzema's a bad player and he's proven that he's an exceptional player as the years have gone on. Uh, but he was a guy that basically would take up the space, that would act as that focal point, that would attract defenders, that would attract the ball towards him, that would hold up the game. And United basically played that way without that focal point, which I thought was a mistake from minute one. Like, at least put somebody on the field in that position. Put Pogba as a centre forward because he's a big guy, because he's a strong guy, because he can hold up the ball. Or even McTominay or something like that to have them in a bit more advanced up the field. It felt every time they went forward that they had to work that bit extra harder to even keep the ball in the in the, in the opposition half um yeah it was it, it was a, it was an odd it was an odd lineup like and and 
in, in they were fortunate in in some regards as well that they didn't go down to ten men because I think Scott McTominay was very uh, fortunate to get off of not getting a red card, which he has been a few times this season. And and United didn't really respond with any kind of like aggression or attitude to, to to kind of drive the team forward when when they did have the opportunity to get back into the game and when they did have the opportunity to win the game there was no real you know va va voom in their attack um and and I didn't see any changes coming from Ranyet that were going to create that into the game uh, or to inject that into the game even when Rashford came on as he said that he had that funny chance when Alanga tangled tangled with him and, and brought him down but other than that there was very little to offer uh for Manchester United as an attacking force yeah, and maybe this is a discussion that we should have on a when there's a little less news. Like Rashford's form this season has just been so dreadful. Like I know at the first half, Gary Neville was constantly calling him for for him to come on as a, as a striker to play in the game. But first of all, like he's just never really done that. Like he's always been a wide forward. He spent most of the season out on the right, uh, where he's not even all that comfortable compared to the left. But that's where he's been. Um, yeah, and 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 his off ball runs like he's just stopped running off the ball. It's bit it's his form has become quite a concern, and definitely will be a big challenge for whoever comes in as as manager of the team. And the going back to the overall performance, like I do think it's quite funny in that this was probably one of United's better performances off the ball, in that they pressed quite well, especially in the first half. Anyway, like they they were able to actually get the ball back off Leicester pretty quickly. They were able to sustain attacks a bit more. Um, because that can be a real problem where they, they they have an attack and then it breaks down and then they're very open on the counter, but they actually were able to uh, kind of counteract that uh, today or on Saturday. They were actually able to win the ball back and, and put good pressure on, and that was a sign, I suppose, of the progress that Rangnick has made in his time there. Um, but at the same time, you know, it wasn't really worth much when they did then get the ball back and they just felt a bit clueless as to who's actually going to score the goal. Um, so that was, it was just a weird game with a weird atmosphere and it felt like the result was kind of inevitable that, it, that they, they wouldn't win and uh, just feel a bit hopeless there for uh, their top four hopes now. Yeah, they've certainly given themselves a bit of a job to do. Like they still have the winnable matches. There's eight games left for them. Like you can see, you could easily see Manchester United winning eight, eight or not eight of those matches, but six of those matches. Uh, and getting 18 points and and being just about at the 70 point mark but whether that's enough or not uh, to to claim fourth place it it, it might not be at this point and they may have just left it too much to do I think even eight games or that be 24 points would probably be enough but that would be a big ask for Manchester United uh, at this point to win that to win that many games in a row they haven't shown that consistency all season um, defensively, I don't. I still don't think they're there. I don't think Leicester challenged them as much as they could have. Um, I think you make an interesting point about the way that United controlled the game a bit better against Leicester City, but I also think you have to look at the opposition and how Leicester looked a bit frail physically, mm. and that's why Chaudhry and Chaudhry, or whoever you want to pronounce his name, was on. He was to add a bit more of that bite into the middle of the park, and he kind of did. But at the same time, Man United really did have the physical dominance of them in in defence midfield. But it was again up up top where they were a bit short. And it really did show when they couldn't really get any attacks going or any shots or really challenge Michael in the goal. Yeah, and like one of the very like very basic things that you can notice that's wrong with United is, you know, you mentioned bringing someone on, but like for all of the money that they've spent, you look at their bench and you go, like, who's coming on there? Like uh, Reinick had admitted that uh, Lingard was vomiting throughout the match while um, <laughs> uh, being on the bench. Uh, so, you know, he obviously wasn't an option. Uh, then obviously Cavani and Ronaldo were out. And, you know, after that, there's 
just no one. Um, and, and to an extent, you could say the club has been a bit unlucky with a certain situation, with a certain player's name we won't mention. But, you know, at the same time, you know, that happened in January, I believe. And, you know, they, they could have brought someone in regardless of that situation anyway in January because they probably needed it. And, and yeah. they just didn't. So um, you know, but they had other they had other players in the like they came, they finished the game with a lot of attacking players on the field. But um, the, it, it's 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 not that they have a lack of bodies. Well, I do think there is a general lack of bodies given the money they spent. But there's a lack yeah. of players you look to quality. and you think, yeah, quality. Basically, you know, you look at a bench. Yeah, Nemanja Matic and Scott McTominay playing, yeah. and Fred. No offense to Fred, but those three players playing the vast majority of your matches. And being the players that are kept on often, you know, you, they sacrifice other players to keep those guys on late on in matches, and they're meant to be the creative force in your team. You know, even Paul Pogba, he isn't that kind of player. He isn't a creative midfield player. He is a, a very good eight, you'd, you'd argue, even even a good wide forward at times. That He's kind of in, in between a hybrid type of player he is. He's not a guy that's going to sit back. He's not a Tony Kroos. He's not a Luka Modric Um He's not the guy and a guy that's going to pick a pass through it or, or open up defences or, or hold the ball and recycle it in a way that's going to eventually lead to an opening for a team. And United really don't have that player and haven't had that player in many years, but let the, they'll keep on buying fullbacks they won't use. Elsewhere then at the uh, the foot of the table or there thereabouts, Everton lost to West Ham and uh, you know Lampard just continues to struggle with the character of his Everton team. I I don't. Frank Lampard, um, like you'd have more respect for him if he didn't tr- throw the team under the bus as quickly as he has. Like this is was it at least the second, if not third time he's thrown this team under the bus and blamed the players and their lack of character. Like the, he's not making any friends in that dressing room by doing that. Like sure, maybe some of them might agree with him. Oh, we're not, we're not doing well enough. We need to do better. But like a lot of players, like well. What are you doing to change anything about this? Why you keep playing the same players in the same positions, trying to do the same thing? That's leading to defeats week after week after week. Um, because you know you're you. He hasn't done anything massively different since coming in. I, I don't see what why, what how he is doing better than. Um, oh my God! What was the previous Everton manager? Rafa. Than Rafa Benitez, like he hasn't done anything better. If anything, they become more, um, more defensively stale really uh they they don't really have a way of getting out of the out of the back half of the field and i I, frank lampard's not going to do anything to change that and really you know when when claudio ranieri was replaced at watford you you know that you know that was the time of the year where you make maybe maybe everything should make a change as well (laughs) again if i if i'm getting the times right you know because you know sometimes like watford i think made the right call maybe it was still too late for them to recover their season but maybe if you appoint a new manager and it doesn't work out, maybe you do have to change things again. Yeah, like the the thing that stands out for me with Everton is they spent, uh, they didn't necessarily spend a lot of money in January, but they brought in a lot of bodies. Uh, you know, Daniel they brought Hally. in the two, they brought in the two defenders, and but that was basically like for like the 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 money they made from selling Dinier went on those two defenders, and they're not really. For this season, they're more developmental players. But like you know, they brought in Donny Van Der Beek and Deli Ali. Oh, true, well. true, and, true, and, and, true. You know, one of those who actually contributed to this team. Like it feels, and 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 the other, the impression I got at the time as well is that Lampard specifically wanted those guys in, and 
Um, I remember at the time as well, Donny van der Beek had been offered a loan move to Crystal Palace and he chose Everton instead. I just kept thinking, like, why has he watched any Premier League games this season? Because, you know, I just have to imagine he'd be having a much better time of it if he had gone to Crystal Palace. And I wonder, is it personal reasons that he want to stay near Manchester for family, perhaps, you know, and everything? Yeah. That's probably why he did it. But yeah, you're completely... On a footballing point of view, you know, Patrick Vieira's Crystal Palace, you know, they may not win a lot of matches or score a lot of goals, but they are much better footballing side uh, than than Everton have shown this season and, and have better footballing players in there. But yeah, you're you're entirely right. Like, I... I, I sorry, I forget. I, I completely forgot the kind of loan signings or the weird signings they made at the end of the window with Deli Alley and... Well, Deli Alley is a permanent there. signing, which is uh, still just baffles me how that happened. Yeah, and 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 the finances. Like I heard, it was zero for a while, but maybe it's it's zero rising to forty million or something, which will be very interesting to see if Everton do go down, whether they can actually afford to to make those payments to Tottenham, and how that hurts Spurs in the long run as well. But yeah, Deli Ali's done like next to nothing since he's been at Everton that I've seen. Like I think he was having a better time at Tottenham last year than he has at Everton so far this half of the season. Uh, and Donny van der Beek continues to be played out of position, in my opinion. I don't think he's found. I think I think Lampard doesn't know how to use him. I think he's thrown him into centre midfield. He's thrown him out wide. He's thrown him in more of an attacking role and not seemingly letting him settle in any of those positions while moving players around him. And it doesn't really make sense. Like um. <sighs> like I'm just out of the they have all the components there to be quite a good creative attacking side and it seems like you've put all of the nuts and bolts into the wrong positions yeah and I like they've got this big game coming midweek that we'll maybe discuss a bit later but like I do feel a bit a bit like everything again a bit lucky this year because they have been abysmal they've had like relegation level form but there's just three really bad teams below them that, that might uh, save them from, from relegation but it does as well speak to the fact that like this is going to be a really important summer for them because they need to get every decision right otherwise you know they'll start from zero but with the same team and the same dismal atmosphere around the club yeah. and you know that just speaks to me as a recipe for disaster yeah I, I entirely agree and and to talk about everything like just give them a little bit of more context like they have uh, the highest accumulative loss over the last three seasons now they only spent like a million last summer in terms of transfers, but they did obviously spend in the in the winter window. Um, but the, they they're in danger of being you know affected by financial fair play. They're trying to build a new stadium and finance that. Uh, at the same time, they've lost the the, the value of the Russian sponsors, and and that's uh, apparently severely affected their owners' uh, wealth as well. Um, they've lost the lucrative sponsorship they had for their training ground. I think it was like twelve million pounds or something, which wasn't it's no small sum. Uh, and they'll never get that money. Apparently, that was a complete kind of um, like weird sponsorship uh, that that they received, and it won't be replicated by anybody else. And and they have to find a new kit sponsor for next season. So if they, you know, even if they stay in the Premier League next season, they've got a lot of of hard work to do in the summer. Uh, and I don't see, I don't see how Frank Lampard could be part of that, even if he does keep them in the league. Then uh, over in Italy, the, the Derby d'Italia took place, which we previewed last week, and it was a pretty hectic game. It lived up to the billing, I think, and uh, Inter came out on top with a 1-0 win, but Juventus absolutely dominated the game. It was a, a 55th minute penalty or 50th minute penalty, something crazy like that, from the first half, uh, I should <laughs> I should say. Uh, the first first half lasted 55 minutes. What happened was a, a penalty was originally given on the stroke at halftime, 
just for a, a stamp by Murata on the edge of the box that was, you know, it didn't seem like anyone really noticed it until the bar was like, hang on a second, is there a foul here? Um, and then they spend a couple of minutes analysing it, the ref went to the monitor the whole time, it quickly escalates to all the Juve players and all the Inter players bartering with the referee over this and that and then eventually Hakan uh, Chalanoglu took the penalty it was a really tame one, Uh, Chesney saved it, I think it's the fourth penalty save he's made this season and possibly in a row uh, and then uh, it had to be retaken, even though the rebound was bundled into the net by a Juventus player, um, because Matthias De Ligt had uh, overstepped the line uh, too early, and so it was retaken, uh, and then Hakan eventually scored after m- much more bartering from all the players. Uh, the referee had it out about five yellow cards and all of this, and uh, it was just absolutely... Uh, bonkers match. It was a game as well where it felt like no one could really hold on to the ball for too long because uh, everyone was intercepting the play and it was it was almost like everyone was running around like a, a classic five-a-side game where it was just, where's the ball? I'll go get the ball. And it was it was very frenetic. Um, Inter blew a bunch of counter-attacking opportunities, but it didn't matter because Juve blew a bunch of really great chances that they made in open yeah. play, and it uh, it somehow only finished 1-0, which is a huge, huge result for Inter in the title race. Yeah, it is. It keeps them right up at three points off their, their Milan war rivals. I don't know what way that league title is going to go. It reminds me of when, was it 2002 or 2003? And I think Juventus ended up winning it from the lowest position, uh, when it was like Inter's to lose, and I think other teams, Milan and maybe Roma, were involved as well at the time. Um, and yeah, Juventus came out, out unexpectedly out of nowhere to win the league. Um, yeah, I feel I feel it could be a season like that. Like the Romantics say, you want Napoli to win, and you know they have their own issues. But yeah, we'll see. It'll be an interesting thing either way. I did get the feeling that there was a real lack of control in this match, especially uh, surprising considering who the managers of each side were. You know, people who were quite controlling in their way that their team set out and. And they seem to have lost control. Like I saw that clip of Allegri losing his mind at the yeah. fourth official, uh, with his jacket and everything, um, throwing it off. And yeah, the the way the way that match went, it felt like the, the everybody lost control of it. And you know, really, if if a team had actually got their heads screwed on straight, they could have really taken it to the other team and destroyed them. Um, but they didn't, as it turned out. And it didn't matter for Inter because they already had the penalty and they won it. Um, I think it's a. Uh, quite almost quite just the way Juventus have taken this season you know they started so poorly but then they bought the best player in the league or one of the best players in the league to try and arrest their their misfortunes and it almost worked but I think it's right that you know they can't just spend all the money and buy another uh, an opposing team's best player to to kind of drive them towards the league I think it's right that they shouldn't really be involved in the league title this year yeah, and then it left, um, or not it left, but earlier in the day as well, Napoli had had a very similar uh, hectic game with uh, Atalanta. That one finished 3-1 to Napoli, who uh, are having just yet another injury crisis this season. And so that the doubly made it an important result that they uh, won despite missing uh, several key players. And uh, it was another game in which Atalanta, the, the top four hopeful against the, 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 the league title hopeful, absolutely dominated the game. Uh, but it was just uh, a silly... I think it, well, it was a penalty that, that opened the scoring in that game. It was a silly um, silly moment of misjudgment from Atlanta where Napoli finally had a bit of possession after 30-odd minutes and they just passed their way through Atlanta, got the penalty and scored. And from there, they just were able to control it. It was a nice 
little free kick routine that they got the second and then from there I think they were they were relatively comfortable despite having like none of the ball um, and, and another absolutely huge win for them and uh, yeah all the pressure now on Milan who played this evening against I think Cagliari um, which you'd fancy them to win but yeah the way this, this title race is going it's uh, very unpredictable right now yeah, you can't you can't really get it, and and the goal differences are starting to to shore up as well. <laughs> so it's going to be even tighter as it goes down to right down to the wire there. Then uh, just to close out the news, a bit of, a bit of sad news here from uh, Lou Van Hal, who uh, announced on TV that he is suffering from severe prostate cancer. And of course, our sympathies sympathies go out to our favorite soundbite machine. Uh, we're all part of Lou Van Hal's army uh, in this in this moment. Yeah, like it, it gives a, I suppose, an extra level of complexity to the comments he made last week when he was on the international break with Holland, um, saying about the World Cup should never be on in in Qatar. Maybe he was actually saying it from the heart and not just saying it as an ulterior dig at FIFA for him not being on committees. Uh, so maybe he's got nothing to lose at this point, and he's going to start talking more or dropping more truth bombs as the the coming months happens. I hopefully he gets. He gets well, hopefully he makes and is still manager for the World Cup in, in the end of the year. Um and we'll see how how well his Dutch side can do in it. Yeah, and I I do want as well say that it was uh, seemingly like a very brave move to, to go on national T V and, and announce that and he'd been kinda of keeping it secret he'd said. So, um, you know, he didn't even tell any of his players and was kinda of hiding that he'd been going to the hospital. So uh, clearly a very Difficult situation there for him, so uh, yeah, that was very commendable as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's the history of the Tottenham. We believe in the history. The World Cup draw took place on Friday, but how much excitement is there surrounding a tournament in Qatar, and how can FIFA justify this farce, and what is there to say about the future of the World Cup? Uh, you know, the, it's it's. I say I have I have a bit of trepidation with it because it's it's not going to be very fun. Like, have you seen the schedule? Four games a day, constantly through it. The 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 players are going to be spent. They're they'll have to jump straight from a really hectic club campaign directly into this, knowing that they have to go back to club football afterwards. Um, four games a day is going to be tough in that heat. I know it's the winter or whatever. You're the slightly cooler season when it's going to be on over there, but still. It's going to be baking hot. The like they're like I'm just thinking from a pure footballing side of things. This is not going to be a good tournament. Uh, I can't see how it's going to turn out well. There is concerning matches happening as well. We'll see how have the USA Iran goes. Like the, the remember ninety eight being a, a particularly tough game between them that Iran came up on top and and hopefully that'll do better. But also other things happening as well. Um, we we you know we do, we don't know what the situation is going to be with Ukraine and everything whether they can qualify or not or whether they'll be able to qualify, you know on on a sheer footballing side of things that that whole side of things does really irk me a bit. Not to mention everything else <laughs> associated with this with this World Cup that it's going to be in one city effectively, um that we're not going to be able to. You know, we're not going to experience a culture, a whole country of people getting on board with it. You experience a different footballing side of the world. I'm not, I'm not sure that we're going to get that out of, out of this World Cup. Um, yeah, it's, it's a bit disappointing. Um, to be say, like the, the groups on paper, some of them look very interesting. I think there's a couple of group of death potentially, or or groups that are be tough to get out of for any any of the teams involved, and it should allow us to see some good broad football between different continents. 
but you know at the same time is it going to be any good when they're all playing each other in, in maybe against half empty stadia in a baking hot heat uh, already wrecked from their club season not really given at all it, I'm worried it's going to feel like a bit of a Confederations Cup type of atmosphere yeah like uh, Miguel Delaney has been just brilliant on this lately he went to Qatar for the draw which um, you know I know a lot of people have kind of given him some backlash for that as perhaps a sign of hypocrisy but he's completely right when he says that it's better that he goes and cover uh, and dissenting journalists go and cover these stories because that's how you get you know uh, a proper voice discussing mm-hmm. these things as opposed to just regurgitating FIFA's own narrative which is really what FIFA would want um, you know FIFA would want the likes of Delaney to stay at home so uh, and like seeing some of the pictures that he posted on um, Twitter of um, you know just the infrastructure not even being finished yet I know they've a bit of time but not that much time like the no. comp- competition's in six months um, you know the like Tarek Panja posted today a picture uh, an yeah. overhead picture of the stadium which just looked grim like I joked that looked like something out of the, the movie Dune which it did, you know, it did. Like, <laughs> you know is that's not a great aesthetic for, for a World Cup um, yeah. so you know and then there's the, the manner in which these stadiums have been built you know the people that have died for that like yeah. you know no no person should ever die for a World Cup to, to be um, nope. held in a country like, it's just not worth it as much as we all love football it's not worth anyone's life and um, nope. you, you know then the fact that there's been no compensation for those people who've lost their lives or their loved ones or the people who didn't die but are still working on those those or, um, ju- or justice statements. or prosecution against the people who who, who, who yeah. caused those deaths well, th- you know, th- the- those people are being lauded and celebrated for god knows what yeah. their money it's- yeah, it's it's quite disappointing. It's quite obvious where this came from, you know, that you know, it's it's not even it's not even played with, you know, with the Russian World Cup we all said, Oh, you know, it's at least it's Russia, it's a massive country. Um, they have a huge population, huge footballing country, um, they have a history of holding massive sporting events, international events, you know, they at least Russia had that for the twenty eighteen World Cup if it had nothing else, none of the political, you know, ramifications around it or how they bought it or allegedly bought it or whatever other nefarious means they used to secure the, the rights to the World Cup in twenty eighteen. But all of that's been given. It's like everyone just accepts it now with Qatar, like, yeah, you know, uh, they they probably bought it, you know. It it doesn't make any sense to be here at all. Uh, it's all in one city. They have no infrastructure, as you said. They have no roads between things. They have no, um, you know, hotels or 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 transport between things. If if there were to be fans attending to the country, um, and and there's no real home home atmosphere or kind of a a, a big aura around it. Like it doesn't really exist in Qatar, um. And, and everyone just accepts it, that this is what's going to happen and this is what a World Cup is going to be. I don't know if there's been, like, I wasn't around in 1978, but I imagine it was something similar to the Argentine Junta holding it in 78 and, you know, people like Johan Cruyff pulling out of the World Cup because of it. Um, that's the only, the only likely, I think, uh, comparison we can draw in, in, with this tournament. And, you know, that had its own miserable associations with it for many years following and it still is a bit tainted in a lot of people's minds and i don't see how this world cup can't be tainted in people's minds you know even at this stage beforehand but certainly after it happens i don't know you know i'm sure every team that whatever team wins this world cup will be absolutely elated with it and will celebrate it for for the rest of time but at the same time i don't know if anyone else will 
And like just on a very personal level, like the World Cup is obviously something that I absolutely love. It's it's the competition, like it's it's basically the competition that got me into football. It was kind of my introduction to it as a child, yeah. and you know, I'm sure it has been for for Most millions people of people like out say, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like it is, it's a wonderful occasion. It happens every four years, and that makes it feel so special. And you know, Russia at the time, you know, we watched it, and I think we generally enjoyed the competition. But we did know that it was. It wasn't Painted. right that it was on in Russia, and you know it was ugly seeing uh, some of the images of Infantino and Putin together, and, and you know I think the uh, the Qatari Emirati were there as well at times. So you know the, like it's it's nothing new that FIFA you know is painting itself in with uh, these horrible regimes, and you're completely right to to point to seventy eight as well. But like you look at like South Africa, as much as the football was bad, like it was such a wonderful tournament you know yeah. it's a bit of football on during celebration the of the continent you know bringing yeah. it to a new part of the world and i'm all for that like i i do not hold you know that attitude towards like oh we should be bringing the game to another parts of the world that it's not celebrated as much i absolutely agree with that i'm like great that football is getting more popular in the middle east and qatar particularly great but i, I still you know <laughs> we could bring the world cup to another look like iceland the football's got very popular in the last 10 years that doesn't mean <laughs> we should play the world cup in iceland just because of that and, and and as well, like, you know, when Ireland miss out on the World Cup, usually I find that just devastating because I obviously yeah. want Ireland to be a part of it. But when they didn't qualify this time, obviously, you know, part of it was inevitable. It's not the worst World Cup to miss. Like Yeah, like, I just don't feel that bothered. Like, I didn't even watch the draw. I just kind of saw a couple of tweets about it. And I'm only really looking at it now for the first time. And, you know, I look at it now as well for the first time. And I'm seeing, like, you know, is this not the group draw from the last World Cup? It looks very similar. <sighs> You know, you got France and Denmark in the same team. You got Brazil, Serbia, Switzerland playing each other again. Brazil and Cameroon, they did, They also yeah. draw each other a lot. That that was 2014. Uh, you got yeah. Portugal against Uruguay again. You got Uruguay-Ghana again, which, you know, at the, at the same time is quite funny. Um, you know, England-America, you know, we've done that before. Iran-America, we've done that before. Yeah. You know, like there's just some. Like, I feel like Argentina played Mexico. I could be wrong on that, but I feel like they played Mexico at some point. But uh, you know, that group does look a little bit interesting. But at the same time, like four games a day as well. I heard that today. I was just like, that is that is too much. Three is a is a nice balance for the group stage. Four is just a slog. Yeah. Like especially because some of those games, like most of these games, are probably going to be bad given the conditions that they'll be in. Given the fact that it's halfway through the season. It's um, all in one city. Like, it's in a city the size of Dublin. Yeah, um, which is, like, like, crazy. Like, if you imagine how many people the World Cup... If we assume this World Cup brings in the same amount of people that kind of went to Germany or South Africa, like, that's going to be dangerous, almost, the amount of people that you'll have in one area, basically. Yeah. Like, that's why, you know, it... You almost it, hope it no would one be. Goes. It w- w- yeah, that's the thing. Like it's a, it, it's a toss up between them, which is which is more likely to happen. Either that people go actually travel to Qatar in the middle of the year, which is possible. It's winter, you know. It could be very attractive for European uh, visitors. It could be also very attractive for some South American and, and American visitors as well, and even Far Eastern visitors from from the likes of Japan um, and and the Australasians countries like New Zealand. If if if, if they do get qualify for this. Um, it could be a fantastic destination for them and a fantastic uh, w- reason to get away from whatever miserable winter they're they're facing in the weather wise 
Uh, but if they do, they've no guarantee that their infrastructure will be finished, that it'll be ready. Like, you talked about Miguel Delaney's coverage of it, but he was saying that you couldn't walk down from one street to the other street without being in a car. There, There isn't going to be enough cars for people to, you know, one by one rent. I don't know how the public services operate there. I, don't, I can't imagine they're too great. Uh, that could deal with hundreds of thousands, because this is, will be hundreds of thousands of extra visitors uh, per day, probably, g- given that the group, there's four group games on a day. You'll have them from all over the world in for in for a day or two and then want to go again. Like uh, I, I wonder what will happen. Like the only the only saving grace is that people can probably stay on the street because the weather won't be bad uh, too bad. But I don't know if that's uh, that's safe or is that recommended. And then the other thing is, if nobody actually goes, it'll just be an empty stadium, and it will just feel like a miserable, you know, off-season, pre-season tournament. And and the other thing as well is that you know, just to go back to the fact that you know, uh, having it in in this part of the world, like it, there's no real issue with that. Of course, I completely agree with that. But at the same time, if there are people who would like to go to a World Cup, like we're, we're fo- like the World Cup is a celebration of humanity as well as it is football. Like it's bringing all these different cultures together. But if you know, some people feel like it's not safe to go because yeah. you know they might get you know imprisoned or you know they'll be treated horribly you know if you're a member of the lgbtq community you're not going to this world cup i would have thought because you'd be completely afraid of what might happen yeah um and and that's not acceptable either and that's again something that should have completely disbarred uh, a nation like qatar from being able to even uh bid for the host of this competition let alone actually win the bid yeah, like there's a lot of talk. Like I think the United States manager was was speaking last week. I think he was being interviewed at the mix zone at one of these after the 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 announcement of the groups, and he did talk about the the old, you know, it's not the it's the old well worn statement. Oh, you know, we'll we'll bring we'll bring we'll go to this World Cup. We'll play because we can highlight these issues with the people. We can make you know make it out that they're you know they need to understand how the way they are isn't right, isn't the way that we want to live. And like I hear that to a certain extent, but I don't think they're going to change their opinions because the Americans told them that the you know, you should treat people equally, no matter their creed or gender or sexuality or anything else for that matter. Um I don't think they're going to listen, uh, to be honest. And I think it would probably make a much bigger impact if teams did boycott it. Like I don't really see anything happening like that and I don't personally I don't know any players that will do it either that have enough of a not a conscious but have enough power behind them that they you know them boycotting the World Cup would make a massive deal you know if Leo Messi did it it would be a huge deal but then you know this is his last opportunity at a World Cup you'd imagine at the highest level um and and similar for other other players like I don't see them having the having the commercial freedom that they could feel that they could do afford to miss out in the World Cup uh, for their country um, and then even then there's no guarantee that th- them boycotting it will make a massive impact um, either so you you know you're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place with this World Cup because like you go along and you 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 know do the do the thoughtful thoughtful thing of trying to you know bring your dem- democracy bring gender equality bring you know general equality to this place or promote it or do you just boycott it and then get ignored by the the vast majority of people who will just go along to watch the football 
And and the other thing as well, like that argument that has been brought up time and time again, like this isn't the first instance of sports no. washing as as it's known. Like this has been something that's gone on for for a long long Decades. time. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and like we've seen it in Formula One, we've seen it with the WWE. Yeah. Like yeah. you know, the WWE wrestlers were basically held hostage in Saudi Arabia not that long ago because of um, a disagreement between the the regime there and Vince McMahon. Like what happens if there's an issue there between the between FIFA and the Qatari regime while the tournament's going on. Like, what happens then? Are the players in danger? And and we saw last week at the uh, Saudi Arabian Grand Prix in the world of Formula One that a, a missile was uh, hit yeah. 10, 10 miles away from the track, which led to very lengthy discussions between all the drivers where they were debating whether or not to even hold the Grand Prix. And, you know, the BBC came out and were basically like, yeah, well, the drivers were told getting out of Saudi Arabia wouldn't be easy if they didn't hold the Grand Prix, which is like, you know, that's a threat. Uh, yeah. You know, no other real way to describe implied, it. That, yeah. Was, yeah. that was a heavily implied threat. Um, so, like, you know, what happens if a, a descent, like, you know, Qatar don't have a very good relationship with the UAE, um, who are, like, right beside them as far as I'm, as far as my geography and Saudi Arabia. is yeah. concerned. Like, what happens if there is a conflict there? Um, you know, it, it's been said that the World Cup is kind of being used as a shield against conflict. But, you know, no greater target than uh, a world event like this for um, any potential, um, you know, destruction of a, of a regime. You know, if you want to undermine a regime, this is a great opportunity to do it. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully nothing like that happens. But we, we've seen the warning signs uh, with the WWE and with Formula One in, in recent years and weeks. Yeah. So, um, you know, definitely slight concern there as well. Uh, yeah, for, it becomes a players. target for the region. You know, it's a... Um... You know, it was no, it was no surprise, or it was a surprise, obviously, but it was no. When you think about it, it, it made the perfect target to 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 attack something near that Formula One uh, race a couple of weeks ago, uh, because it would get the most attention possible. And and I see no reason why the same approach couldn't be taken uh, when it comes to the World Cup. That it would be a you know a prime target for things. And these things are always targets, so that's there's no there's no nuance there or no new no brand new idea or innovation there if that were to happen but you know th- this area has proved to be unstable in the past so there's no there's no reason to believe that it couldn't happen again and and particularly the way that world geopolitics are happening at the moment um it's it's not the only place you worry about and it's not the only it's not the only thing to worry about in the in the next 6 months uh before the world cup but it, it is certainly i think it'll become much more present in the minds of a lot of players fans and management and, and and the FAs of the of these different countries um as they approach the the Qatari World Cup because you know a lot of things could happen in in the time between now and then and 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 as well like we look back at the World Cup in Russia and we think that you know by allowing Russia to host that competition by allowing by FIFA allowing Vladimir Putin to put himself front and, front and center like that legitimizes his position as this you know, n- not evil at all guy that he clearly actually is. Um, you know, he's clearly a despicable human, but FIFA were so jovial around him, smiling Still and are. laughing Still in the are. crowds. Still are, of course. They haven't know, distanced uh, themselves. They they worked night and day to try and get Russia involved in international football as recently as a few weeks ago. Yeah, and like this legitimizes uh, Vladimir Putin. You might think, you know, people who aren't really into sports might say, oh, it's only football, how, how much importance going to really have but like it's clearly very important because that's why vladimir putin did it 
Yeah. Uh, you know, he clearly sees the power of, of doing this and it, and it's helped legitimize him. It's helped him continue to invade, you know, not just Ukraine or, or it's not, it is mostly Ukraine, but like they, um, they'd they already invaded um, well, Syria in 2014 by that point. Well, um, yeah, the, the Crimean region and then yeah, they yeah. supported the Syrian uh, war as well from one side mainly in that period. So like that legitimizes that whole. Um, well, it know, keeps it quiet because you're focused on other things. Exactly. That you're doing yeah. So you know who knows what Qatar's plans are for after they've hosted the World Cup, but like this is legitimizing them. You know what's to stop yeah. them going and saying, well, you know we we feel like we're comfortable enough now that we can go exploit the world's um, oil supply, or we can go exploit and undermine this uh, region's. Uh, power structures you know who knows yeah. what their plans are no and, and, and they you, can't be good and to play devil's advocate on this you can make an argument about any country thinking that they can do that after they they have executed some kind of um massive event and, and receive praise for it but it's it's just the way that you know going off of what russia did this is to be expected you know this is the last few world cups have not been advantageous to the hosts of that country you know south africa has gone through turmoil since politically i know it's not necessarily down to the world cup but there is certainly aspects of it that have affected it brazil as well has gone through some ma- massive geopolitical changes and not just down to the world cup but it did certainly affect it and there was mass protests after it and and russia have used the world cup to for nefarious purposes since they had it so there's no based on the last few holders of the world cup there's no nothing to dissuade you from thinking that qatar will do not do something similar yeah and then it makes you wonder what america has planned up its sleeve yeah they're, like, they're <laughs> set to host in 2026 and then of course just the the one thing that we haven't brought up i suppose in terms of the future of the world cup is the format change which yeah like this is the last 32 team world cup which i think manny would argue is kind of a perfect format for it um and that just seems like such an absolute waste uh yeah it, it kind of well any world cup that that is being held under these uh circumstances would feel a waste but certainly yeah but you know the i do like the 32 team world cup i like the symmetry of it i like how it works in that way i like how it gives everyone evenness in it i don't like necessarily how third place teams can qualify because i do think it devalues the group stages to a to a level that's beyond reproach um so yeah, like it, it is going to be interesting to see where the World Cup goes from here. Um, in terms of format, it it could have some benefits, like you said earlier. Um, there was a lot of repeating fixtures in this World Cup that we that we've seen in re- not even in, in World Cup history, but in obviously in recent World Cups, um, that that are keep reoccurring because it's the same teams involved and because seedings don't necessarily change. So yeah, it, at at least it will give a bit of variance into the into the matches and hopefully get more teams in because i think that would do so much more to grow the game globally which is already a massive claim globally but i think offering more spaces uh, to more diverse origins um like and that doesn't necessarily mean you know increasing it for everybody but maybe reducing europe's allocation and giving more to africa or to south america well maybe not south america but you know asia and, and place the world like that um so we can get these teams in and and hopefully the the quality of football and the popularity of the sport in their country uh, develops and improves yeah, and like the reason that I think that we're seeing so many repeat uh, ties here is just simply the fact that they did change the seeding for, I think it was the last World Cup was the first time they did it, where they made it the top eight going to the one group, which I think is how they've done it for a while. And then previously it was the next three pots were based purely on geography. 
So yeah. you could get, you know, kind of any random kind of group of teams. And it was very exciting. And geography is kind of how you should seed it if you're going to seed it because we're here to watch countries that would normally play each other competitively against yeah. each other with the biggest stakes possible. But instead, it's, you know, the top eight teams of the first pod and then it's the next top eight seeds all the way down, which is just the absolute least interesting way to do it. And it's like it's unfair to, um, as well, to an extent, when you think about it. You yeah, know, make it's harder stand for the worst ranked teams to do best. Yeah, um, and, and I think that is partially why we're seeing some of the same draws again. And I think you're right as well. It's maybe a bit of a controversial thing to say that they should actually reduce the number of European teams. Like, I would rather they did that and kept it at 32 than just increase it to, to 48 or whatever it's going to be for the next one. Because, you know, we, we have the Euros. We have 24 teams in the Euros. We don't need 13 in the World Cup. We could do with, you know, 9 or 10 at, at most instead i think that would be perfectly fine yeah. even if it meant ireland never qualified for a world cup again i think i'd sacrifice that to to keep it at 32 yeah maybe because you know it, it's it's how south america and afcon both operate um and it, it seems probably fair in, the, in that regard to europe to operate in the same way as well that far fewer than the federation has in it qualify for the tournament but uh, we'll wait and see. You know, they'll come up with some mad format for this in, in twenty twenty six. Uh, if we're lucky, and and we'll get to see it, and maybe Ireland will qualify at that point. Roma had risen from their ruins. Nonetheless, the Greek god in Rome. Well, uh, it's a pretty big week of football ahead. Um, you know, to end on a nice positive note, I suppose. After that, we've got some pretty exciting games coming. Champions League is back, and then there's obviously some huge. Premier League games too. Uh, of the four Champions League ties, though, which one are you most looking forward to? Like, there, the Man City Atletico has a bit of a bit of a bite to it. I know Pep and Pep and, and Simeone didn't always get eye to eye, and uh, certainly that Bayern Munich side that got knocked out by his Atletico side really probably should have won the Champions League that season, and kind of shot themselves in the foot in that game. And Pep does have the habit of of out tacticing him is himself really in big European nights as he's shown basically in the, every season for the last 10 years that he's been involved in it he's done it at some point or another um, so at Man City Atletico uh, at, Etihad, at the Etihad is, is the first one that kind of comes to mind um, the other the other big match I can see being a, a bit more entertaining is probably Chelsea Real Madrid on the Wednesday night um, again because we don't know what Chelsea side is going to show up if, if they do show up and play the way they did against Brentford Real Madrid have the possibility of dismantling this side however if it is the case that maybe Tuchel was getting his players to hold back a little bit and maybe you know throw in a game or two before the before the big Champions League night maybe Real Madrid could be in for another tough night like they had at the first leg against Paris Saint-Germain in the last leg yeah, it's interesting because Real Madrid are, again, the away side in the first leg, so that will surely mean they'll set up very similarly to how they did yeah. in the Parc de Prance, which could make the first leg of this game a bit of a tough one to watch, and uh, I'm glad I'll be uh, playing football on Wednesday night, hopefully, on, uh, for this one, so we could just I could just stick with the highlights. Uh, but that, that game on, on Tuesday, which, again, will be a very similar game, I imagine, of one side having all the ball, like... There's just something so um, there's just there's just a different dynamic to Man City and, and a Pep Guardiola side having ninety percent of the ball when it's against a Diego Simeone side because they can be so dangerous with that ten percent of the ball that they get. So um, you know I'm, I, I've been looking forward. I've, I've been hoping that these two drew each other over the last few years. Um, Atletico have let me down in that they've not gotten <laughs> very far enough to qualify uh, to meet Man City in, in recent years. So hopefully this. 
will be a bit of a throwback for them and we'll see the absolute best of Atletico and uh, you know that would that would be um, I think that would be very exciting if very, I think it would be a tense if not too exciting rather like I just, I yeah. just think it would be one of those nervy games where it feels like any mistake could be costly and I do think while that's not the most exciting game of football you could watch I do think that's still very entertaining yeah I, I agree like I think if I was to bet that what Pep was going to do tomorrow I'd say he's probably going to set up very defensively I wouldn't be surprised if we see all of the kind of more centre midfieldy players playing uh, like Ilkay Gundogan, uh, Gundogan um, starting in, in, in a deep lying midfield position rather than the kind of more uh, prominent eight he's been playing alongside De Bruyne and, and, and Bernardo Silva if he's available Um I, I can see that happening and, and kind of a, a one of their very many attacking players playing in a kind of false nine position and, and just trying to stay very compact and invite Atletico on as much as possible. For Atletico, the only thing, really the concerning part I, I would have from their point of view is that they've had they've looked like they could be got at uh, in the last couple of matches, really, both in the group stage and, and against Manchester United in the knockout stages. They did concede a goal, uh, which is un- un- unlike them uh, in that in that first leg against Manchester United. So they're not as solid as they once were. They're aged a bit. Um, so if Man City can get at them, they can score goals. But yeah, I agree with you. I think this will be a very tense, low-scoring affair and mistakes will decide it. Uh, and it was very funny as well to see Pep come out today and uh, have a go at all the people who yeah. claim he overthinks these ties or he... Uh, he referred to the the overthinking criticism in a very sarcastic manner, as as he loves to do. Yeah, I think he knows he overthinks these things. He must. He's not. He's not stupid. Like he has cost Man City Champions Leagues. He's cost Bayern Munich Champions Leagues, and it's arguably he cost that Barcelona team more Champions Leagues, especially that game against Chelsea way back when. Um, he just has a habit of overthinking games. Well, the Man City players certainly seem to think he overthinks them based on some of the comments Kevin De Bruyne and his camp have made and Raheem Sterling. Yeah, like he's fallen out with Raheem Sterling, he's fallen out with Kevin De Bruyne, he's fallen out with Bernardo Silva, he's fallen out with other players over these exact overthinking situations. Now, he's back in the good books with those players, but like there's no, there's no, like I wonder who's who's he going to leave out now on? Is he going to leave Phil Foden out? Is he going to leave, I don't know, Kevin De Bruyne out again in this match tomorrow night? I don't know. Yeah, and then the other two games I do think are a bit uneven in the sense that, you know, Bayern Munich and Liverpool are overwhelming favourites going into those ties. But I do think there's potential there for a bit of a first leg upset, if maybe not an overall uh, two-legged tie upset. Because Benfica and Villarreal have proven themselves over the course of the season that they are they're no slouches. Uh, you know, Benfica have knocked out Barcelona and Ajax to get here. VRL knocked out Juventus and Atalanta on, on their route here. Like, those are good sides that they've beaten. So, you know, there's mm. definitely... This won't be a couple of 5-0 thrashings that we saw in the last round, well, I hope. Well, um, yeah, famous. You've, you've jinxed it now. Um, like, VRL are a hard team to beat. Like, they probably shouldn't advance beyond the group, group stage, but they did, They you know, they did their duty against Juventus and were deserving winners. Um, Bayern have not had a good period after Christmas but they're starting to get back into the run of it they have a good run in the in the Bundesliga they don't have hard fixtures now until I think the end of the month where they do have a hard run in including playing Dortmund but I think they could throw everything at this match and for that I think they get through and the other side of it I just I think Liverpool are a bit of a seamroller at the moment and, and certainly with the match that's coming up at the weekend I, I can't see them doing anything but win this 
Yeah, like that's that's the um, the big uh, uh, smoking gun going, or the Chekhov's gun, whichever gun it is, uh, going on here is the fact that Man City and Liverpool actually play each other on Sunday, um, and they both play each Tuesday. So there's no excuses about oh well they've had the extra days rest and all this. Um, you know they both play Tuesday night, so they've got five days to prepare for this game after that, and uh, it's going to be an absolutely huge huge tie. Like Liverpool actually overtook. Man City for a couple hours there on Saturday with their was it a two 0 win against Watford mm-hmm. and then Man City won two 0 against Burnley and they couldn't have been a less interesting weekend for for those who looked at the fixtures and was like oh they played the bottom two of the yeah, bottom three bo- both <laughs> matches were quite poor I'm <laughs> watching them they were not they were not vintage performances from either side they did just about enough to win to win their games. And, and that's also why I do think there's maybe room for an upset between both of these games uh, midweek is the fact that, you know, Liverpool might, you know, what if they don't play Mo Salah or Sadio Mane because they've got their eye on Sunday, you know, which is the bigger game, really. Um, and Liverpool, Liverpool have to know that the Sunday game is the bigger one because if they win that, then they've got the... They've got the initiative in the title race for probably yeah. the first time all year. So. And in theory, they have the easier run in as well. I I, I, mm. I personally think um, if they were to win that, but yeah, it's a, it's 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 almost. I was going to make the point to you: is it squeaky bum time yet? Is that as as Alex Ferguson used to always call this time of the season? It's starting to become like it. I think this could be a title decider. Um, like I think so my, too. My head still says Man City. They just have more players. To be honest, like like Liverpool's squad is a bit. Thinner on the ground, and they are competing still on all fronts, and and it can be argued have had a harder run, like run of it, including the Afcon and the impact that had on the team, um, and they've done amazingly well to keep up where they are. the The thing that's in my head at the moment is Liverpool did rest. You could like well, there were some players out, but I think they were resting a few players last weekend against Watford, so they mm. do have a bit in the tank there. Um, and and they have been spreading around the game time, especially in the league, to to some of their more fringe players, um, to keep them you know keep them sharp, but also to to give the the other players a bit of a rest. And this Benfica match, you'd imagine, while somewhat ferocious, it is going to be in Portugal. They do have to travel for that, but I it's not going to be as bad as as the game Man City are going to play at the same time. So. I think I think these things probably even themselves out. I it's it's going to be very exciting on their on their day. Liverpool are the best team in England, but Man City have that overwhelming power. Um, that that is very hard to to match up to, and generally speaking, Pep's got a got a good grasp of these matches now. He's not overthinking the Liverpool games anymore. Uh, so it's a you know, a draw would do City, and 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 they'd be happy with it. So I I think they have the upper hand in this tie. That, that's the dynamic I was going to bring up as well is the fact that Liverpool know that they, they kind of have to win this game like they can't rely on City to drop points elsewhere they have to just beat them when they're, when they're given the opportunity to and I do think that probably lends itself to a more exciting game because you know Liverpool are going to have to go all out in this one they can't they can't settle for a point at all it's too late in the season now to do that and I do think this could uh, this could lead to uh, an absolute classic game like we saw the second half of their tie at Anfield it was just fantastic it was probably the best 45 minutes of football we've seen all season um, you know first half was a bit you know a bit dour but you know they kicked into gear yeah. and that's the important thing and, and I do think that we could get 90 minutes of just absolutely ferocious football and uh, it could be a case of last man standing wins because of the the ties that they've got midweek and then they'll play again uh, the week after that in, in the reverse fixtures of the Champions League ties so you know it's an absolutely massive next nine or ten days for both teams for their season uh, you know it, it could be defined by these this, this next two weeks 
yeah, like both both teams are on for historic, you know, uh, historic seasons. If they if they manage to to get the better of their opposition, you know, Man City could still pull off a league and Champions League double at the very least, and Liverpool technically are still on for the quadruple. Um, so it it is it is a historic week if 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 things go the way of their t- of the of the team in question. Yeah, and then uh, elsewhere in the Premier League, I suppose we should bring up the the match we lost. Aston Villa Tottenham, what a match! Southampton Chelsea. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, we alluded to uh, we alluded to the Everton Man United game earlier in the weekend, which is uh, contrasting fortunes in this uh, Liverpool Manchester weekend that they've got going on. Uh, both teams here in this game just really not having the best time of it at all. No, uh, and it is. Like as we said, it could be a make and break weekend, make or break weekend for both teams. You know, Manchester United really, if they don't get a result out of this game, they're going to be looking behind them and seeing if they can finish even seventh. You know, it could be even worse than David Moyes' season. Uh, the way Wolves are, are are gaining on them, or indeed could have overtaken them by the time this match is even played. Um, Everton, on the other hand, they have Burnley in midweek on on Wednesday night. It's going to be a tough game for for Everton. I think that Burnley game, it's a six-pointer, if you will. But at the same time, they still can afford to lose it and, and, and be in a good place for the Manchester United match. So it depends on what way Frank Lampard wants to approach it. Um, but yeah, if, if Manchester United lose to Everton, their their season is a complete shambles um, just on on the face of it. like It could it could be worse than that David Moyes season. Uh, and conversely, if, if, if they do trounce Everton, Everton really could be in the muck and we could be looking at a historic relegation. Yeah, because, you know, you talk about the fact that if Everton loses, they'll still have a point on Burnley, but you have to look down at Sunday and see that Burnley are playing Norwich. Yeah. So, you know, it could be a case of, you know, Burnley, they've only won three games all season, but they could string two in a row here and that could be enough yeah. um, to, to overtake yeah. Everton. Yeah. Uh, so at that point, then you'd really start to be concerned about Everton. Um, and and it would be quite the story if they went down like it hasn't happened in, a, in, a, in an incredibly long time so um, that would be quite the scandal yeah it would be amazing and, and considering the, the 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 few financial issues we've talked about with them and their their future on on the sponsorship side of things a relegation it would not be well timed for them at this point in time so yeah there's a there's a hell of a lot to look forward to over the next uh, seven days uh, until then thank you for being here Andrew thank you for having me Declan and we'll be back again to discuss it all next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then don't forget you can tell family and friends about the show. Spread the word of the Total Football Takeover. This show can also be found on podcast services, including Spotify, by searching Total Football Podcast. You can also subscribe to my own Medium page in the show notes. You can follow Andrew on Twitter at Conbon27, C-O-N-B-O-N, and myself at CheesyHeartPun, C-H-E-E-S-Y-H-I-R-T-E-P-U-N. Most of all, thank you for listening, and we hope to be in your download feed next week too. The more the merrier. That's what we always say.